Hello and welcome to this episode of the Jane's podcast. I'm Terry Patar. I lead the Jane's Intelligence Unit. And on this episode, I have the pleasure to be joined by Carmen Medina, former Deputy Director of Intelligence at CIA and author of several articles, recent ones as well, which I'm going to touch on about intelligence work and how it's changing. And also author of Rebels at Work, co-author. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that as well in this session, because I think it is highly pertinent and relevant, not just to intelligence work, but to anyone working anywhere. But I've got a particular interest in that, so I will come on to that in this session. So, Carmen, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Terry, for having me. No problem. I've been really looking forward to actually talking to you for quite a while. And um, the article that you published recently with Zachary Tyson Brown in Foreign Affairs uh, kind of gave me a useful excuse in some ways to contact you and say, hey, would you you know, be willing to come on and talk about this in the in the podcast? But for anyone who hasn't read it, you know, the article was about the use of, I guess, increasing open source information within the intelligence world. And the title was The Declining Market for Secrets. And it was touching on a number of points, which a lot of us working in this field have been talking about for a number of years. And and I, I was really uh, impressed by how you summarized those and, and really highlighted where we are currently. But maybe you can give, give a quick summary of some of the points you raised, because I think they're really pertinent. So the fact that I wrote it with Zach Tyson Brown is important because We got to know each other when he found an article I had written 20 years ago on the coming revolution (laughs) in intelligence affairs and thought, oh, my God, I could have written this today. And uh, that's how we became linked with each other. And, it, you know, I was sad that the issues that were identified in that article 20 years ago are still seen as the problems by young people in, in, in intelligence work now. So we made, I think we made two fundamental points. We made the point about open source that there's this explosion in sensors and digital information that allows us to get answers for problems in really different ways than when I grew up, right? That secrets no longer have a monopoly on knowledge and that in fact, a lot of what we do collecting secrets. Uh, A lot of the information we collect using secret methods can be collected now using open source methods. And there's been an explosion in these companies. You could say that James has been in this business a very long time. And a lot of them are in this data as a service, uh, new sector, new domain. That's one point we made. The other point we made that frankly gets lost a little bit because people focus on the open source part is that policymakers need to access information in convenient ways. And the intelligence, in fact, all people, business people, everyone needs to access information in a convenient way. And the intelligence community, because of its formal, hierarchical way of producing intelligence, and because of its concerns about secrecy, can't figure out how to deliver, let's say, lower classification intelligence findings over someone's smartphone. And if I were a policymaker, I would like to receive a text if something really important had happened that I needed to know immediately, but we can't figure out how to do that. While open source intelligence and information providers, they compete over how conveniently they can provide their information to their consumers, right? So those are the two major points that we make, uh, that we no longer have a monopoly on information, And we are going to lose our customers if we continue to support them in these antiquated ways. 
And we propose a very simple starting point, and this gets to the rebels at work part of my history. A lot of reform efforts, not many, most reform efforts suffer from over-engineering. People feel like they have to figure out exactly how this new system will work, when in fact, if it's complex in any way, nobody can figure out exactly how it will work best, and you have to allow it to develop organically. So our proposal is let, let the DNI create a platform using modern, you know, sort of best of breed user interface. And at first it could just be for official use only information, but over time you can grow in confidence and figure out secure ways of sharing less sensitive information. And let's figure out how we can have a modern way of communicating between policymakers and intelligence officers. And that's as far as we go. We don't prescribe any other details because we figure like any other good digital platform, it will evolve as the network of users figures out how best to use it. But I I think that if this is successful, 10 years from now, people having used this platform will realize we need less secret collection and the overall intelligence community structure will be rationalized to fit better the modern era that we're living in. It's so interesting, actually. I didn't realize that was the genesis of the, the article that Zach come across the article you wrote 20 years ago. Was it the one, What to Do When Traditional Models Fail? Yes, that's right. Yeah, so I was rereading that recently, and because it's available online for anyone to yeah, find it. it. Is. It's, and this, you wrote while you were still with the CIA, right? Yes, and, in fact, I wrote it, often misunderstood, I wrote it before 9-11, but because of the publication cycle, it appeared, I think, almost immediately after 9-11. So people think the two are connected, but they're not. Right. But you you hit on so many points which are still so pertinent. And like you mentioned that, Mm -hmm. you know, it could have been written now in the sense that, you know, you you sort of talk about the the coming revolution in intelligence. And over that 20-year period, do you think that that change has happened at all or is it still to happen is that revolution still coming i think not enough change has happened some has occurred but nowhere near enough and i i won't name names but after the foreign affairs article was published i heard from a handful of very senior former intelligence officers names that all of your listeners would recognize saying things like this is the article i've been meaning to write for the last 20 years and I'm, I'm, and I'm sort of stretching my head a little bit going, well, you know, these individuals were more powerful, more senior than I was. So why didn't they write these articles? I, you know, you'd have to ask them. Uh, but there just hasn't been anywhere near enough change. There has been just this general disdain of open source, and it still continues. It's I mean, not all intelligence officers view it that way, but there's still way too many that do. And it was reflected in a lot of the comments we received on on social media. And then, but I think an even harder nut to crack is this inability to join the mobile revolution and figure out how to provide information to customers on all sorts of devices so that you're not required to go to a secret compartment or secure compartment at intelligence facility to read a one paragraph report. It, it just, it boggles the imagination that anybody in the intelligence community leadership still thinks that's a viable model. Mm-hmm. And yet they do. Uh, 
And of course, this has bit them during the uh, pandemic where their workforce for many months wasn't able to come into the office or large parts of it were not able to come into the office. And uh, policymakers were working from home whenever possible. And I, you know, I don't work in the intelligence community now, so I don't know exactly how this all played out, but I don't think it played out well. You know, I think that there were a lot of disconnects, missed opportunities to experiment with new models. And um, I worry that as their customers become more accustomed to doing without the intelligence community, that they won't come back. It's a lot like uh, a lot of businesses feel during the pandemic, right? That people right. have gotten used to not having to deal with us and so they may never return. So yeah, I guess it's sort of like people getting used to getting food delivered rather than going out and going out to restaurants. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it struck me as well, sort of reading both those articles kind of uh, together that there's still this, um, and you, you highlight it in certainly in one, if not both articles, but um, this, there's still kind of an obsession with finished products. Yes. And getting yes. those finished reports rather than rather than having those ever evolving, maybe, you know, dashboards or portals, you know, whatever, exactly. however they're set up. Or, you know. or conversations. In this, I mm. was very, I, I was cognizant of this in 2004, 2005, when I was a senior analytic director at CIA. And I, I and this was before social media, but I just kept struggling with this idea that our product needs to re still remain, you know, authoritative, but it needs to become uh, more informal. It, it needs to be less hierarchical. And I was always striving for a way to reduce the burden of the editorial quality control process, which if you think about it, that process puts a stop to sense making, right? You sort of stop everything and you wait for it the editor to bless the product. And I, my goal was always to achieve quality without editing. You know, is, was there a way to achieve quality without an editorial process? Well, now in a community of experts, I think there is a way to achieve quality without editing because as they engage in conversation, some ideas will survive, others won't. And, uh, and, and, and I think that will, get the customer what they need in terms of findings. And I also think there's this, because in addition to finished intelligence or, or kind of associated with this, is this obsession on length, on, <laughs> well, we have to write several paragraphs on this, or an analyst to prove their mettle has to be able to write a 10-page paper. And even 15 years ago, I was like asking myself, well, why? If a policymaker asks you a question and the answer is no, not really, why can't you just say no, not really? I mean, you know, that's a little bit of a far-fetched point, but we are forcing ourselves because of our strange incentives and reward systems to write pointless paragraphs when a simple one or two sentences answer could suffice. Yeah, and don't you find that for a lot of customers, you know, people especially at the more senior levels, that actually they, they would really appreciate something shorter. Um, you know, and I know there is that sort of, sometimes it's almost quicker and easier to write something longer because they're, you know, yes. editing down thoughts does take time itself and, you know, making something that is easier for customers to digest. It, it, there is an art to that as well. But ultimately it's so much more worthwhile if you're giving them something which is more impactful. And I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm still somewhat surprised that actually that, that hasn't in itself led to a change. The, right. you know, the, the customer demand hasn't sort of forced that change um, in the last 20 years. 
And, and, and part of it, I think, you know, I may be wrong here, but I'll offer it up anyway, is I think there's a, something conservative about the national security establishment that makes them less sensitive to modern trends. And the people who aspire to careers in the national security field, I think there's something naturally conservative about them. Conservative, small c, maybe traditionalist is a a different word. So you mean kind of having a natural resistance to change? A natural resistance to change and a natural resistance to some of these characteristics of the modern age. So I think, you know, if you cut your teeth writing a 200-page PhD on the prospects for the Chinese Communist Party, you're just always going to value, perhaps, Mm. that style of work. I, I mean, I I may be wrong. I, you know, mm-hmm. it's interesting that I think both the Secretary of State under Biden and the CIA director are both uh, men uh, who have had like 40-year careers in uh, national security. So I'm still waiting for the young whippersnapper to thrive in the intelligence community who <laughs> demand a totally different kind of support. And that just hasn't happened yet. I guess it's. I guess some things have, have moved on in terms of you know from what we know about, for example, the president's daily brief. I think that changed quite a bit under President Obama. From what I understand, <laughs> that it was a more dynamic deliverable in you know on an iPad rather than on a written right, right. document and with more graphics, etc., and more interactivity. I guess things are moving on in the sense that customer expectations are changing because they're being reshaped by what they're seeing like you, you mentioned before by what they're seeing from other providers or what they're seeing even from news sites you know you see yes. more interactive content these days that news websites are publishing and i kind of think actually there's there is a definite lessons that can be learned within right. the intelligence communities um from the way news output has changed and shifted i mean there are some things we shouldn't learn but there are some things that yeah, i think absolutely. definitely absolutely you know, that we can and, adopt and we also have to be humble and realize that all of these quality control measures that we have had and this formal process that we've employed hasn't eliminated in intelligence blunders, right? right. You know, you, you can produce uh, tragically wrong slide decks or intelligence estimates on any number of issues, and, and God knows we have. So I just think that we have to divorce quality control from this formal process and explore other ways of doing it. And in fact, I don't know about you, but I find that I am most stimulated intellectually by a good debate, not mm-hmm. by consensus, but by a good debate. Yeah. And I think that's another thing that we we mask mm. in the intelligence process for the sake of, well, this is our official finding. And uh, just that would drive me nuts. And if I can put an aside here, one of the things, you know, the uh, crown jewel in the intelligence process is the national estimate. And these estimates are coordinated among agencies. So every agency has a seat at the table. And it struck me that that was foolish. Why should the agencies be the denominator of differing intelligence perspectives on an issue? What that does is if there's a strong minority view, but it never becomes the majority view in any one agency, then it never gets fully expressed at the coordination table because it's done by agency. And I, that, and as an example, that is something that desperately needs to be rethought. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
the process that the intelligence community uses today doesn't really support quality the way they think they do. As you can tell, I am a total heretic on almost <laughs> all of these issues. <laughs> but I find myself nodding in agreement because I've seen the same issues. You know, I mean, you were obviously describing from your experience in the U.S., but we see the same issues elsewhere. You know, in, in, in my role at Jane's, we work with clients in countries all around the world, but the same dynamics exist in the sense that, in particular, two that are, I guess are kind of almost contradictory in the sense that client customers at senior levels want things which are short, easy to consume, quick for them to understand, which they can read instead of you know getting their information from the news and but at the same time when people in within the intelligence um units and teams etc are trying to work out well how do we get on top of open source information mm -hmm. there's this obsession with trying to collect everything and read right. everything right instead of thinking about okay well actually let's, let's be more targeted more selective and how do we exactly. how do we crunch all that down and then thinking about the analysis aspect which i think is almost completely lost when people talk about open source intelligence right. it is right. often what people are talking about is information not not, yes. not intelligence and, and actually it would be great to get your thoughts on this so it, you know my perception has been in the last 20 years that i think people have lost sight a little bit of the analytical aspects yes and some of the things you described there you know that element of debate and getting yes. different perspectives in favor of well here's all the information here you go. <laughs> right, right. Well, what opened my, I'll, I'll answer that or, or comment on it through a little story. What opened my eyes toward the potential of open source information was more than 20 years ago. I read a book called The Hitler Myth by Ian Kershaw, I think his name is, a historian. And in the book, he took all these, what he called myths or legends about Adolf Hitler and evaluated whether they were true or not. And one of them was that the German people were bitter enders, that they supported Hitler until the very end, no matter the level of destruction. So to answer that question, what he did was, or what he presented in his book was an analysis of obituary notices of fallen soldiers in the Munich newspaper. And in 1939, the obituaries, 99% of them said that the soldier had died for their Fuhrer. By 1944, when the newspaper or the government made it mandatory that all obituaries say that, the percentage had fallen to single digits. Now, I was blown away by that. I was blown away mostly by how did he get that analytic hunch? How, how did he go there? Mm -hmm. And that is a tremendous example of what analysis is, right? You have mm -hmm. to interrogate the data and ask it really important questions. An example of what the intelligence community would never have thought of doing, and I thought of all the questions you could ask about Iran or China or Russia that might be answered by similarly interesting methods of analyzing a non-obvious data source, a non-obviously relevant data source, right? And I, I realized that we had just totally lost, we were totally lost in this area. And I think a lot of the companies that have emerged recently that are data as a service actually have as their business model this idea that you ask us a question and we will go find you some interesting data. You know, and it might not be like the direct correlating data, but it nevertheless will provide you an answer, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And that, yeah. you know, and that, you know, it's open source is not reading a lot. <laughs> open source <laughs> is understanding patterns and indicators that provide you with answers on questions that you care about. Exactly. I, I couldn't put that better myself. That's exactly exactly how I would view it. And I think um, I think that does get lost. I think that, you know, people do become a bit obsessed about just collecting lots of information, hoping that the answer is in there somewhere. Right. Um, because I think it's because of that ease of collecting these days. You know, there is so much information out there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we hear a lot of these kind of things. We hear information being compared to oil and, you know, the value of information being oh, so yeah. high and right. these kinds of things. And I think, well, it doesn't make sense because you can't duplicate oil. <laughs> Once no, you've used it, right. you've used it. Yeah, right. um, information is different. It is valuable, but in a different way. And I think yeah. people don't quite understand it fully yet or how to use it to its uh, you know, best, uh, in the best way possible. But I wanted to also touch on another point you raised. And again, this comes back to that idea of how to analyze information, how to produce best analysis, um, which I think you made it in the um, article you wrote 20 years ago, uh, what to do when traditional models fail, where you mentioned you touched on the point about diversity. Yes. And I think this has cropped up in some of your, your other sort of writing since then in terms of and it's something that, you know, I've I've been asked about by former colleagues and, and uh, it's something I've discussed. And, and I think I had the same point that you made, which is it's not about diversity of, of people in terms of background or where they're from, et cetera. It's really about diversity of thinking. But then I think more recently you've, you've said actually the two things are definitely linked. Mm -hmm. They are linked. And uh, for the longest time, I. I never thought of myself as a Hispanic or Latina analyst. This was never a formulation that I had about myself. In the 1980s, when I was working on South Africa, I ended up being much more sensitive to the possibility that the apartheid system could end sooner rather than later. And I was in a minority view for many, for you know, a couple of years until a boss of mine actually went to South, South Africa and made his own evaluation and decided that maybe I was right, that apartheid was was crumbling. And in his memo, I think to Bob Gates, as I recall, that's who he wrote the memo to, he wrote, why did I not see this the way Carmen did, as early as Carmen did? And he goes, maybe it's because I'm not Puerto Rican. And I that just, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> that's the first, <laughs> that's the furthest thing from my mind, right? Yeah my conscious mind. And right. I was like, oh, okay. So that's the, sort of the, and for a while I had a little placard in front of my desk, Puerto Rican analysis. <laughs> I just thought it was so goofy. But now I think, you know, in retrospect, I, you know, there is something about my upbringing, my experience, and all of our upbringings and all of our experiences that bias us in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. to value some information more than other information and to think about some issues more than other issues. This is inevitable. You know, they're not the same thing. You can have diversity of thought without ethnic or legacy diversity. Mm -hmm. In fact, an interesting phenomenon in the United States I read about is that there's a lot of adoption, maybe not so much now, but 20 years ago, many, uh, for example, Korean children, mm -hmm or Chinese children were adopted by American parents. And now these kids are going to college 
and they may be seen as sort of having some Asian diversity, but the kids are saying, you know, I grew up in Nebraska. Right. My parents' name, last name was Robinson, and I know like nothing about Asia, right? Despite right. what I look. Uh, so there's another kind of complexity to it. But I do think that that they're related. I wish that there was a, a good way of, of measuring thinking styles. I think that everyone in the composition of teams, mm-hmm. analytic teams, could benefit from a reliable, non-judgmental assessment of people's different thinking styles. I'm not a very good detail person. I know I'm not, uh, and I tend to I tend to default toward optimism. I know that as well, <laughs> and those are you know gaps in my thinking style. So, one of my favorite thinking buddies is a is a Eeyore of of epic proportions, and and that makes for really good conversations, and and uh, we help each other. To my knowledge, there isn't a good tool to use in a non-judgmental way to assess thinking styles because they're all equally useful and they're they're all equally useful and yet probably also they vary in utility based on the scenario yeah right so if you wanted to do some exploration of alternative futures for china or, or brazil or some country like that you you need a different set of uh, thinking qualities than if you're looking at, you know, some other, some you know, the the way the COVID is going to spread across the world, for example. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that still an area that needs a lot of work on is this ability to deploy diversity of thought in an optimum way to solve analytic challenges. To my knowledge, we don't know much of anything about that. When I talk to my friends who are in uh, talent management or human resources, I always say that's the future of yeah. this field. Whoever figures this out in a, in a valuable way, you are going to have just this golden asset that you will be providing companies and governments and organizations. So, you know, if, if any of your listeners know of anyone who <laughs> does something like that and does it well, let me know. That's really interesting. So yeah, we've I've worked with an old colleague who is a consultant for us who kind of specializes a little bit in that area, but I think even he would say, you know, it's 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 a really difficult field to determine, you know, yes. people's thinking styles and 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 then to actually act upon that. You know, even if you are able to assess yes. people to figure yeah. out okay, you know, we've got a we, we've got a pool of candidates here who all think in slightly different ways, etc. But or, or you've got a pool of people within an organisation yes. actually selecting to put together a team that functions that gives you all of those best attributes yes. that you would want together. Right. You know, yeah. the, you know, where you, you know, for example, you can say, okay, well, well, let's pair up an optimist with a pessimist, and yes. we'll get them, yeah. you know, hopefully balancing each other out in their assessments. But I think it's really difficult for organisations to then actually with their resources to be able to create teams in that we way. So see, that's probably the next challenge. Yeah, right. The only insight we yeah. seem to have is in retrospect, where someone is writing about a, a team that accomplished something excellent. And then the story, the anecdote will be told. And Susie really brought this to the table. And Joe brought that to the table. And Ali brought something else to the table. And together, now we know in hindsight, it led to a beautiful outcome. But 
we we don't really have any useful knowledge about it before the fact that maybe this is something that artificial intelligence will be able to help us with yeah. maybe over time you can kind of calibrate artificial intelligence to have a different bias and kind of play play yeah. around with you know different artificial intelligence units who have a different theory about how they're going to evaluate information see what happens yeah that could be interesting definitely and uh, i'm also envisioning you know in terms of the portal that you described before and in the, in the, you mentioned the article with zach um in foreign affairs that you know you've got a portal for intelligence that people consumers would go to and i'm almost thinking in there you would you would need to incorporate a way to have differing viewpoints differing yes, analysis on a, on a subject yeah. and, and have the consumer make up their mind okay which mm -hmm. are they sort of leaning more towards etc but then that sort of leads me on to wanting to ask you about the next part, which I touched on at the start, which is about about what you've written in um, under the Rebels at Work banner, right, right. where, you know, it's really difficult, I think, in any organization, intelligence or otherwise, anywhere where you've got an analysts giving their thoughts on a subject to elicit those different viewpoints, to give people the space, I guess, to yes. put out different ideas. So it would be great to get your thoughts on that and, and for maybe for those readers or sorry, for those listeners who aren't familiar with Rebels at Work, you know, for you to describe a little bit about that and how that came sure. about and, and right. sort of what you're trying to promote through that initiative. Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity. So I ended up being, as well as listeners have already determined, a heretic at CIA, although I didn't know that's what I was. And uh, what really brought it to a head was the internet revolution. So by the mid 1990s, I personally was persuaded the internet was gonna change everything for knowledge companies, everything. I mean, I bored my friends. I was, I was obsessed with this issue. And I kept telling the CIA, uh, and by then I was sort of a mid-level person there. I kept saying, we're gonna have to adapt. And what I didn't realize stupidly was that the internet, the, the, the theological nature of the change I was proposing. The internet then was very kumbaya, you know, sharing information, information is free, yada, yada, yada. That's not what the CIA ever was about. Right. CIA was a closed system. And I didn't appreciate it at the time, but as I reflected on it, I understood that when you as an individual are trying to make change in an organization or present the minority a different view, if it's theological in nature, by which I mean that it is uh, akimbo to the prevailing orthodoxy of the organization, you're gonna have to be a really clever person to advance those ideas without ruining your own career. That's like a bottom line thing for uh, uh, rebels at work. So. When I retired in 2010, I, I was just speaking about my experience at CIA and, and this, which was so strong for me, this frustration at arguing, proposing something that was so obviously true, uh, and yet find no one receptive to the idea. And Lois Kelly, my co-author, heard me talk about it once and said, why doesn't anybody help? She came up with the phrase, the rebels at work. And that's how we began our collaboration, a very informal and yet quite fruitful uh, collaboration. I think uh, uh, kind of the first part of your question was, you know, how do you advance different views or 
make it easier for people with opposing views to express their opinions. And I think I was really blessed to work on South Africa in the 1980s. So I, I was an analyst on South, South Africa, and then I was the chief of a 10-person 10, 10 team, more or less. We had a very great team of analysts. They were all, they many of them ended up being quite senior officers at CIA. So this this was a uh, all-star team. And it was incredibly divided on the future of South Africa. So there were some, and it's hard to think about this, but back then, some people thought the whites would never give up and that South Africa would only, apartheid would only end as the result of a bloody civil war. And, and a minority, frankly, thought that you could have peaceful change. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had to manage that. One of the things I learned, by the way, was that optimism and pessimism played a role in that, that the people who were optimist by nature on anything tended to be optimistic on South Africa. And the ones who were pessimists on nature and conservative by nature on everything tended to be pessimistic about South Africa. So that's what that's what, that's kind of when I first began to realize that, well, there's no way anybody can be unbiased and objective because we all bring some essential nature, some essential outlook that we have on, on life to the work we do professionally. It's, it's unavoidable. And perhaps AI will solve that, but I have my doubts actually. Uh, <laughs> So in the book Rebels at Work basically is, is and in, we have a blog site and, you know, uh, a Twitter community, we're basically gathering best practices for both managers and individuals. The managers who are interested in creating a community, creating an atmosphere in their team where people feel free to speak their mind. And for the individual employee, how do you speak your mind more productively? You know, what are the mistakes to avoid? And what are the best practices for being a more effective advocate of minority opinions? And, and I think this is a skill that is just not taught very much in the modern business environment. Managers are rewarded to execute and they're not really rewarded to cultivate differing opinions. In fact, even saying that makes it sound a little funny, right? Yeah. And and individuals are taught to be an excellent employee and aren't, you know, I don't think there are too many companies that have a whole module and orientation around what to do when you think the company is doing something horrible. I, you know, I just don't think right. people are taught that. Yeah. And yet, in, in an increasingly complex world, that kind of knowledge and those skills become more valuable. So that's what we do with Rebels at Work. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's something that, that, that resonates with people. And uh, so that's why we do it. I, I definitely found that. I mean, I came across your work a few years ago, and it really resonated with me because what you describe in, in um, the work also is that there's a, a good way to be a rebel yes. and there's also a bad way. There's and a, I think, you know, it's, it's, a, continuum. Why, it's a continuum. Right. It's not okay. black and white, right? Black, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But there's probably more constructive ways and less constructive ways. Exactly. I guess. That's a better way to describe it. Yes. And I think, you know, I definitely have found from experience that, that unless somebody guides you in that, 
it's really easy to fall into that trap of being yes um of not being very constructive in the way you right. rebel against issues you see at work etc um so you know what what advice would you have to especially i think you know like you said there the people coming into their careers in the, the early part of their careers because i think it almost needs to be framed at an early stage because right. when you first enter organizations that's probably when you're most open to identifying those issues yes, that yes, people who've been exactly. there a while may not see. Right, right. So, I mean, what, what advice would you give or, or, or for me as a manager, could I give to yeah. people who I'm recruiting or advising as, you know, who are early in their analytical careers, et cetera, you know, how can they be constructive rebels? Right. You know, I know that at my point in my careers, <laughs> what remains of it, that I, I probably, my ideas may come across as a little kind of conservative, compared to Generation Z entering the workforce. <laughs> but I, I do think uh, just, you know, in this, in the spirit of someone starting out, I think it's important to step, I know you're gonna make a lot of observations and I know that it's going to be clear to you how things could be better if we did things differently. But I think it is important to establish your own status as a contributor to the mission before you start suggesting all the ways things could be done better. And Adam Grant in his book Originals uh, profiled me, uh, uh, my efforts as a CIA heretic. And that's one of the points that he makes that the first time I tried to do it, I didn't have any status. So I didn't have any credibility. And you have to, as an individual, establish some credibility. Now. There's a phrase that old school managers use a lot that I don't think is very effective is this phrase that people have to pay their dues. That's a phrase I think managers to talk about them need to avoid because what does that mean anymore? And how has the modern environment even changed the concept of paying your dues, right? When I started work, literally I had to acquire all my knowledge in an analog way. I had, you know, I could read a book maybe, but I learned to operate successfully at the CIA by watching other people operating successfully at the CIA. That's not the case now. You know, there's all these websites and there's all this knowledge that, you know, and if you are uh, a serious person, you can learn a lot about where you're going to be working and have that knowledge in your back pocket before you enter. So this Paying their dues concept is, you know, what you hear managers use. I think everyone should just excise that phrase from their vocabulary. Uh, I think that for the individual, I'll just say two more things. For the individual, you need to socialize your ideas with others on the team mm-hmm. before you start bringing it to the attention of management. And if you can't get anybody to support your ideas, it may not be because they're not listening to you or don't recognize your brilliance. It may be because your idea is not ready for prime time. There is right. nothing so weak as an idea whose time has not yet come. It may eventually be correct, but it's just not the time for it yet. And I think managers managers need to be authentically open to other people's ideas and not not just go through the motions. Yeah, authentic, that's just such a horrible, trite word. But I'll, I'll, I'll illustrate it by giving you a phrase Mm. that managers love to use. I have an open door policy. 
if you actually have an open door policy, you never need to say that to any <laughs> because it is just no, right? Mm -hmm. So I like to say that a manager who says they have an open door policy doesn't have an open door policy. And in fact, what does it mean when you say I have an open door policy? You're telling the employee that the employee has to come to you to present their ideas, enter your office, enter that sort of altar to your excellence, right? <laughs> from a just from a psychological yeah. perspective, mm -hmm. you're putting yourself in the more superior position and they are in the lesser position. So and I have a whole list of things like that that I could bore your listeners with of things that managers say that are the opposite, that have the opposite <laughs> intent of what they think. Right. But that's that's the one I like to point out. Great advice. And one thing I would say from my experience as well, on that point you made about socializing your ideas, mm -hmm. I found it's really beneficial to almost do that kind of one on one. You know, oh, talk absolutely. to other people one on one. Don't don't right. try and float an idea right. in front of an entire group at yeah. the outset. You know, talk to people one on one. Exactly. Get people on board. You know, and then take it as you said to that bigger don't audience. Or embarrass people. That's one of my mm -hmm. big lessons in life: is that at all costs, avoid making anybody feel embarrassed. Yeah, definitely. And I think you know, I I genuinely wish I'd have benefited from that work um, when I was earlier in my career and um, I probably could have avoided moment, uh, a moment which one of my former colleagues I think described it well when he said it was it, there was a moment when my career became a job and um, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I probably you know you can because you can end up speaking out in the wrong ways and yes. uh, you know we've probably all uh, done that at some point but I'd love I'd love to have or encourage young analysts to look at your work and, and, and understand the rebels at work concept as well because I think it really benefit them and, and help them avoid being less constructive rebels right. and, I, and, and actually i think i think for intelligence people working in intelligence roles in particular i know your advice really covers anybody working in any organization but i think within the intelligence community it's more necessary right than anywhere because yes, we do need that diversity of viewpoint critical. that we talked about before yeah right this has been a really fascinating discussion. I could probably talk to you, Carmen, for hours and hours, and hopefully we'll get to meet in person at some yeah. point. And, yeah, uh, well, continue the, next time the conversation. I, I, before the pandemic, I came through England a couple of times a year. So I, I lived there for three years. So it's oh, it's fantastic. it's like another home for me. Oh, it'd be great to see you here. And, and yeah, definitely to, to talk about these things in person. Um, but this has been a, a great discussion and great to get your thoughts. And I really want to point our listeners towards all of the resources that you mentioned, the articles that you've written that are available online, uh, some of the talks you've given, which, uh, you know, TEDx talks, et cetera, which mm -hmm. are online as well. Um, and your recent article with Zach Tyson Brown in Foreign Affairs, as well as the Rebels at Work uh, books. I think you've had one uh, one that came out recently, which I think was yes, a collection right. of some it's blog posts. It's basically a distillation of the best of our blogs. Yes. Yeah. Which is definitely worth a read. Um, I was I was going through some of that recently, and yeah, really really useful stuff that you can pick up out of there. I think for anyone working anywhere, but as I said, particularly within the intelligence field. So, thanks so much for your time, and uh, you, I hope we get to talk again. Cheers. 